This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, Luke 21, verses 5 to 19. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. But the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words with a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your souls. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Uh, there's a reason that the liturgy encourages us to say thanks be to God. Uh, because sometimes we read texts that we would not on our own choose to thank God for. And that, I suspect, is probably one of them. Um, the great season of Advent uh, bears upon us, unbelievably, Christmas is around the corner. Um, if you shop at Target, it's already here, apparently. It's everywhere. And uh, here in the church, we are preparing, of course, not for Christmas, but for Advent, which is just uh, two Sundays away. November 27th will be the first Sunday of the season of Advent for us. Um, so right now we stand in a position to prepare um, for a season of preparation, which is what Advent is. And we'll talk about that more uh, in a moment. Um, but I was reminded by the liturgy this morning that there's a reason that we're called to give God thanks for the words of the Bible. Uh, and that's because it's like a reminder. Just when you feel yourself sort of like sinking down into <laughs> the words, either frustrated because you can't understand them or sad because they're sad or hard to hear, you know. It's like the liturgy pulls you back up and reminds you to be thankful. It's a way of saying like give thanks and have hope. Um, there's more to see here than might meet the eye or meet the ear immediately. And so I would say the same to you, you know, let's um, in sort of obedience to the prompting of the liturgy. Uh, let's give thanks to God for what he would say to us because his word always comes as a word not just of reproof or correction or foreboding, but also of, of hope and of life. So I want to pray um, and then ask the Spirit to just help us hear the words of Jesus and sort of make, make sense of our moment and where we are, yeah? Uh, Holy Spirit, Lord, we are thankful, God, for the gift this morning of worship, and we're thankful, Lord, for the opportunity to be here gathered, Lord, in your church, as your church, Jesus. Those, Lord, who have 
crawled out of our warm beds and homes this morning, hoping, Lord, to hear you and be close to you, the giver of life. And so that's what we ask you for this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come and give life and hope. Correct us, Lord, where we are in need of correcting. Strengthen us, God, where we are weaker than we should be. Help us to hear you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so we have um, just two weeks before the season of, of Advent, as I said, begins. I, I don't know how many of you in this room have any history with the church calendar at all or with this tradition. Uh, you may have just like, I don't know how you got here this morning. Somebody told you there was an Anglican church, and maybe that means a lot to you, and maybe that means nothing uh, to you at all. And if somebody were asked you on Monday, where did you go to church? You would say, I don't know, sounded like Anglican, maybe. Angelican is another thing that I've heard people say. Um, here's, here's what I would say uh, to those of you who may be new to all of this. Um, I actually think that this is a great community. Should you be drawn to like the liturgical church? It's a great community to learn in. Our hope is that we would make this tradition available to um, our neighbors in a way that feels hospitable and like, oh, there's something here for me that I maybe could like grow as a way of practicing my faith, that this could all be a little bit more tangible. One of the ways that this tradition, I think, does that really well is through the church calendar. The church calendar is an invitation to practice marking time and keeping time according to the life of Jesus rather than just like cultural events or like, you know, national holidays. So that time itself gets oriented around the gospel, the person and work of Jesus, who he is, which isn't of itself a kind of powerful thing to reflect on and think about. So much of our life really is dictated by, you know, cultural realities. Time as the wider world keeps it, and as we're told to keep it in market. But the church calendar has this like subtle and maybe not so subtle, kind of subversive reminder to say like, actually, you belong to a different sort of time altogether, and your life is of a different sort of thing altogether. And so sometimes if you feel yourself like a misfit, like your life and the things that you're committed to and the life that you're trying to live doesn't quite fit into the world around you, that's because, it's because we are looking for the advent, the coming of the kingdom of heaven. We're anticipating it in the way we live, and sometimes our life doesn't fit with the world around us. So the church calendar is one reminder of that to me. Advent is the beginning of our new year. So the church does not celebrate New Year's Day on January 1st. We would do. Yeah, I'm not weird about it. It's like New Year's Day for me in my house on January. But you know, like the, the real beginning of the church year starts not on January 1, but on November 27th, the beginning of Advent. We'll look for um, this season of preparation for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And we get four weeks to prepare for Jesus' coming, his incarnation, as the church tells it, God choosing to like enter into the world. And you have four weeks where you're called to prepare for that. Christmas then is not just one day, but 12 days. It's a whole season unto itself to celebrate, to reflect on what it means that God would be with us, come and be born here. Uh, Advent calls us to reflect on, therefore, before Christmas, the comings of Jesus, the fact that he comes, that he came at his birth, and that he will come again. Um, this is the kind of provocative nature of Advent. It's why the texts get kind of weird. 
uh, and hard and kind of dark. Strangely, you know, it's all, it strikes me every year. Just as things all around us get more festive, you know, uh, it's like you'll hear one or two people um, brave enough to play a Christmas song already. You know, they're like, whatever, it's coming early for me this year. We all need jingle bells. And so like you'll hear it in a store and you'll think, what time is it? November, there's jingle bells already, or people put out Christmas lights. So there's like this like festive spirit in the air, sort of around, but the texts inside the church get real dark, heavy, and hard. And that contrast strikes me every year. What is that about? Well, it's a reminder that you're keeping a different sort of time, that your step and your pace and the way you live your life is meant to be a little bit offbeat, out of step. That's just the way that it is. We're living between two comings, between the coming of Jesus at his birth and the future and second coming of Jesus when he will, in fact, uh, come again to judge the living and the dead, as the liturgy says. Uh, the text in the liturgy, uh, however, have Jesus, or not in the liturgy, but in the lectionary, so we also don't choose what we preach from during this time. We preach according to an, a very old lectionary preaching plan. And so the words of Jesus also get a little bit uh, darker and heavier. It's when he sounds the most like an Old Testament prophet or like John the Baptist, you know. Uh, everybody loves um, thinking about Jesus as a healer. Everybody loves thinking about Jesus as like the nice teacher guy, you know, the guy who was really smart but didn't take himself too seriously. We all have these visions and versions of Jesus that we really love. Apocalyptic Jesus is rarely anyone's favorite. <laughs> Um, and yet, it is in fact a, a part of who he is. Particularly towards the end of his life, Jesus became more and more apocalyptic sounding in the way that he talked. This is end times Jesus, you know. Jesus is um, standing with a group of people and they're all looking up at the temple and admiring its beauty. So you have to like put yourself in the scene. Here are these, you know, passers-by. They're all in Jerusalem. We're glad to be here. We're standing up at the temple. We're all, like, adoring it. Isn't it beautiful? Oh, lovely. Oh, the pride of Jerusalem. And Jesus basically says, enjoy it while it lasts. There's coming a day when not one rock will stand upon another. Imagine, you know, like, that's the guy in your tourist group. Like, who let this guy in? This is not why we're here. We're here to celebrate. Jesus was pointing at something, some, like, coming destruction of the temple in particular. But not just the temple. Then he goes on to sort of allude to, seem to imply a wider, bigger kind of destruction, an end of something bigger than the temple. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines and plagues. Dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. Jesus is talking clearly about the end of something, some kind of end times, not just for the temple. And here's the unfortunate thing. Whenever we go to talk about the second coming of Jesus or the end times or however you have been taught, whatever sort of like language you have for it, it always comes with so much baggage and background noise. It's really hard ever for us to take to even hear what Jesus is saying, let alone take any comfort in it. Um, it is sort of immediately conjures up that language alone, images of like wild-eyed televangelists, you know, and paintings of people in robes floating through the air. Like the one in our foyer. 
face Jesus. Nobody's favorite. And there's a real shame. Uh, not just a shame, there's a kind of tragedy in it, I think. Because what's happened is that we've lost the ability to hear what Jesus is saying and to like grapple seriously with what it means for us. So this season is, like it or not, given to the strangeness of things. You're going to feel over these next few weeks the strangeness of your faith. You are. And I hope that you can hear in it an invitation to embrace that there is and ought to be something about your way of living that will at times feel strange. That holiness is maybe just exactly that. At certain times it feels a little heavy feels a little strange. But y'all, it's so important. So what I want us to do this morning is give some serious thought to what it is that Jesus is saying and why it's important that we believe in the second coming of Jesus. You know, every week, you'll do it in a moment. If you're new to Christ the King, if you've never been before, after the sermon, we'll stand together before we go to communion and we'll affirm the Apostles' Creed. We'll say our faith together. And the reason that liturgical churches do this every single week, many of them, like we do here, um, is one, to make sure that if I've been heretical, you just sort of forget it <laughs> by saying something orthodox. But secondly, and more importantly, um, it's a statement of faith, not presuming, of course, that you actually do believe that Jesus is going to return and judge the living and the dead. Maybe you really struggle to believe that, actually, like if pressed. It's hard for you to imagine. But the gift of the liturgy is putting the words in your mouth and it's a kind of challenge and invitation to say, grapple with this, wrestle with it. What does it mean for you that Jesus might come again? What does it mean for you that he would in fact return to judge the living and the dead? What are the implications for how we live now? I think they matter. And so I want us to spend some time thinking about it uh, together. Firstly, just like what is Jesus talking about uh, in this text? Let's start there. I've already said that Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple. He's also referring to the coming persecution, a very literal persecution for Christians. Um, and it happened. Anytime Jesus is sounding apocalyptic, and this is not just true of Jesus, but also like the Old Testament prophets, other places in the Bible that have this same kind of tone, usually two things are happening at the same time. One, a prophet is speaking to something that's like about to happen rather imminently or in the like not so distant future. And also at the same time, something that is going to happen probably in the distant future. And sort of talking to them both and speaking to them at the same time, using the same language, which is why they're so hard to understand and know what to do with all of the book of Revelation. Some of us just have stopped reading it. Like we'll never know. Somebody will explain it to me when we get to heaven, I guess. And maybe we feel that way about all these words. So it's important that we know Jesus was speaking to like real life events, things that were about to happen and did in fact happen. The temple was destroyed, no stone left on top of another in 70 AD, just about 40 years or so after Jesus stood in front of it and said that it would happen. Christians were in fact persecuted a few decades after that, right around the time Luke was writing his gospel. The church was experiencing exactly the kind of persecution that Jesus hinted that they would. So those things really happened. And then beyond that, we all have a sense that he's pointing at something that is like still yet to come. That there will be tribulations. 
for the church. We don't have time to sort of get into and deconstruct all of our beliefs around the end of the world and tribulation and rapture theory, unfortunately and sadly. This is not our day for doing that, as much as I'm sure we'd all love to talk about it. Here's what I do know, and it feels important to say. Um, for most of the world, and particularly the Middle East, um, they've been experiencing tribulation like forever. Do you know what I'm saying? It'd be really hard for somebody in Gaza to know when a so-called tribulation was happening and how that was different from just like last year. It's been that way for a long time. And that's true for a lot of people uh, in the world. So all that to say, I don't know if you have relatives that every time there's like a string of earthquakes, they feel prompted or compelled to say, well, this is probably, you know, it's the signs of the times. It's the end. It's coming. It draweth an eye. They said earthquakes. Anytime rushes in the news, you know, it's a sign of the times. It's the end of the world. Here's the thing. I think Jesus is pretty clear. All those things matter, matter a great deal. Climate change is real, and we should pay attention to what's happening with Russia. How much any of that tells us about when and how Jesus returns, that's the part that like, feels a lot like unhelpful speculation. Jesus is pretty clear. If anybody stands up and says that I'm him, or here he comes, or he's coming tomorrow, like, don't be afraid. Don't pay attention to them. He says in a different place, in a different gospel, actually nobody knows the day or the hour except the Father. So is Jesus coming? Do I believe that? Yes. Do I believe that there's any kind of like sacred cryptic math or prophetic rendering that I can do based on world events that would help me know when he's going to do that so that I can tell you sadly no? If that's what you're hoping to hear today. I can't. What I can say is the same thing that Jesus said. Keep watch. Why did he tell us to stay awake? To watch, to wait. Which is what this season is all about. A hopeful expectation. The primary image of Advent is, of course, of a pregnant Mary. Someone who is quite literally full of expectation, knowing that God is about to do something, that her life is about to change, that it is quite literally just, you know, any day now. And what does that image have to say to us at a time like this, 2,000 years after Jesus wrote these words? Do you know the reason we just read the text in Thessalonians where Paul has these pretty like harsh words to say about people who don't work? You know, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Any of you ever hear that growing up? when you were a teenager and didn't want to get a job. That was just me, okay. Um, I know that verse. We've all probably heard it before. But the reason that Paul, the author of Thessalonians, had to say this is because there were Christians in the church who had stopped working. They were so expectant, believing that Jesus was coming at any point that they'd quit their jobs. And were just sort of like sitting around waiting for him to come. And so Paul has to go back and say, no, don't quit your jobs we don't know when he's coming don't stop getting married don't stop having children live life in this world and watch while you live 
It's a powerful, powerful idea. What does it mean to be full of expectation, hopeful expectation, and to live like this is never going to end? You've all heard the story, but I can't help myself but say it again in case some of you haven't. Do you remember what Martin Luther said when someone asked him, hey, if you heard that the world was going to end tomorrow, that Jesus was coming back in the morning, what would you do today? What did he say? Do you remember? Oh, great. Maybe we haven't heard. He said, plant a tree. And I love that. Because what does that say? That whatever Martin Luther believed about the coming and the return of Jesus, he believed that this life has continuity. That Jesus is coming for your life and your world now. He's going to enter into it. Transform it, yes. Renew it, yes. Heal it, yes but very much for this life and for this world. I think our belief in the second coming of Jesus has two primary implications. I think it implicates the way we think about justice. I believe in the second coming and the return of Jesus because if I did not, it would change the way that I thought about justice, the way that I did justice in the world, and I think that's true of you too. Secondly, if I didn't believe in the second coming of Jesus, it would change the way that I believe about a real Jesus. I don't know that I could believe in one. Because if we lost hope that he's coming ever again, how real do we believe he is now? So I want to talk just briefly in closing about those two things. Why does the second coming of Jesus implicate how we think about justice? In the Old Testament, in particular, they use the language of the day of the Lord a lot. You'll hear that in the text that we read in this season, the coming of the day of the Lord. Actually, that's a theme that stretches throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end. In short, it's this idea that God is going to come and reckon ultimately with human evil, that he intends to, that the coming of the day of the Lord will bring with it a kind of reckoning, a justice that God will bring to deal with our corruption, our oppression, the evils we've done in the world, and that that will happen ultimately. But what's cool to me about what happens in the Bible is that that day of the Lord has these mini arrivals, M-I-N-I arrivals, these mini comings, these mini days of the Lord, where what happens ultimately on the big stage will play itself out in like the real world in everyday life. So for example, when Babylon fell, the Jews believed it was a day of the Lord. It was a time of reckoning. When the exodus happened, they believe it was a time of reckoning. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the day of the Lord. It was a time of reckoning. Here's here's what I believe about this. The justice that you hope for and that I hope for in the world, I have attached to the person of Jesus, who I believe him to be, and the kingdom that I believe he wants to bring to bear in the world. I hope for justice because God hoped for it first. And what we want for the world, ultimately we believe it does come from him. He will have to heal the world and fix it. I can't and neither can you. But the response to that is not, therefore, well, I guess we'll just all sit around and wait for it all to burn up, clean slate, you know, until some glad day, the great by and by, when Jesus will just get rid of all of this and take us out and start over. Real life never works that way. Have you noticed? Whatever pain and hurt you've experienced or caused, even when you see it healed and redeemed, you take it with you. Right, you should. We learn from it. We grow from it. And that will be true of this world too. I believe Jesus will heal it, renew it, and restore it. But continuity is a part of the story. 
So here's why that matters. is because I am meant to anticipate that big day, the day of the Lord, in my everyday life. That the justice of God somehow, according to the Bible anyway, is meant to come through my hands, my heart, my life now. Yours too. That we anticipate his coming in the way that we live. If you believe that God is going to come and heal the world to bring justice, and if you really believe it, then shouldn't it shape the way that we live now? Shouldn't I be working for that kind of renewal, that kind of healing in my life now, rather than just waiting for somebody else to take care of it all and do it all for us? The kingdom comes through these hands, through my life and yours. And we hope, we watch, we wait for Jesus but will he find faith? Those are the parables that he tells. Like when he comes, will he recognize a church that has been about his business? That's the question of Advent. Are we preparing? Are we watching? Are we waiting for him in the way that he told us to? One time I was sitting with a group of folks. This wasn't all that long ago. We were talking about and praying for um, justice and reconciliation in the church what it means, how to be shaped by it. The topic of racial reconciliation came up in particular, what it would mean for us to engage in that work. And um, There was someone in the circle who asked, you know, well, but if people ask us why we're doing this, what would you say? What would your answer be if someone asked you, why do you care or why work for racial justice or reconciliation? And I had a friend of mine who was sitting next to me, um, one of only a couple of black women in the group. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. She looked at them and with big tears in her eyes, she said, because it's his heart. That's why. So that brings me to the second thing. I believe in the second coming of Jesus because I believe in and hope for a real Jesus. Not just an idea I'll say it, if this is all poetry, it's probably the best poetry out there. And maybe that's enough for you. I love poetry. But the scandal of the resurrection and of the second coming of Jesus is that it is a very literal and a very concrete idea. And sometimes it's someone as, you know, as sophisticated as I like to think myself to be, who loves to play with ideas, who loves poetry, who loves to read literature, all of it, I love a great story. The scandal of the second coming and of the resurrection is that we're talking about flesh and bone, a real person. This Jesus, who we're all here for, is somewhere now a real person. That's the challenge of your faith. Do you believe that he stands somewhere in his body with a face so that when I say, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. Is it a face for you that looks back at you? Is it a king, a lord, a god who looks back at you or an idea? Because it will make the difference in how you live your life. If it is a real Jesus that you hope for and believe in who is coming again, and y'all, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know. We're going to look up in the sky, you know, and lightning, and there he is, zooming down. I doubt it. Every time I see paintings, 
like those we've all seen. I have the thought, you know, it's like us trying to grapple with cosmology before we had telescopes. We thought the world was flat. It looks flat. It was the best we could do. That makes sense. At some point, you could just walk off of it. I suspect when we're dealing with the coming of Jesus, there's just a kind of like knowing that we don't have access to yet. I don't know what it will look like, but here is what I do know. There will be no insiders and outsiders. Some of us who get it and some of us who don't. There will be no more secrets. And the love of God and the justice of God that we hope for, we will have access to. And that he will go about setting the world to rights. But you believing that he will come to do that matters and it will shape the way that you live now. So that leaves us with this. You have two weeks to prepare for Advent. To give room to the kind of strangeness of your faith. And the exhortation I have for you is to make a plan. How are you going to make room for a very real Jesus over these next few weeks? Who comes? Advent is going to say to you over and over again, He comes. Jesus is coming. He came, he will come again, and he comes today. And that matters for your life because if you believe in the coming of Jesus, you will pray. When you encounter something you can't fix on your own, when you lose hope, when you are overwhelmed, you will be more likely to call on a Jesus you believe is coming than on an idea that you think other people just sort of gave you to make you feel better. Christ comes unapologetically, the church will say over you, he is coming, he will come, he comes. So if he's coming into your life, into whatever you're dealing with and going through, what are you going to do to make room to receive him for these next few weeks? Give some thought to it. We'll be talking about it here too. I'll have suggestions. But prayerfully, feels like a good invitation to say today, help us, Holy Spirit, make room for Jesus.